Good morning and God's blessings to this particular segment of the Lord's Bride. It's good to be here with you. I especially appreciated Dave's um, directive and comments here uh, concerning your ordination. Um, I think uh, he was very clear and um, yeah, I just really appreciate that kind of leadership and I think um, uh, there's something to be said for brothers who will lead the congregation in such a way. Some of the things he said maybe just overlap a little bit with what I'll have to say, but uh, I trust that'll be okay. The flamboyant former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, when meeting with the State Department, periodically staged his entry for critical meetings. And intentionally, he would arrive just a bit late, and he would appear with arms full of files and journals, which he methodically placed out on the podium in front of him. And then following a dramatic pause, as his eyes scanned the room, he would say, ladies and gentlemen, the decisions we make in this room will determine the destiny of this world. Decisions determine destiny. We don't think about our history enough, but at times we should, especially as we reflect on church history. The decisions that were made 110 years ago are still affecting you today. The decisions that you'll make in this ordination, if the Lord tarries, will affect you and your people for a long time. So this proverb is still true today. As you consider your choice of nomination for church leadership here at Weavertown. Decisions determine destiny. It's appropriate for each of, for each of us to ask questions. Where do you want to go as a church? What do you want to stand for as a church? Where do you plan to arrive at? Today, you're going to be writing history that in essence will be read decades down the road, providing the Lord tarries his return. The decisions you will make today will significantly impact yourself, even more so your children and your grandchildren. It's appropriate to ask ourselves, what is important to God? As his, as his bride prepares for his coming. Yes, important today, important 10 years from now, and 50 years from now. What do you want to leave behind for your posterity? What do you want to leave behind for those who will be writing your history? In many ways, how we choose, why we choose what we choose, will determine the destiny of our brotherhood. I repeat Henry's quote, ladies and gentlemen, the decisions we make in this room will determine the destiny of the world. The former U.S. Secretary of State, he understood the destiny of the United States of America. 
And while those decisions do affect us, I'm confident that you agree with me that the decisions of church life are of much greater and lasting consequence than Henry Kissinger's word for. Ours deals with the eternal welfare of souls. Souls that will live somewhere into infinity. Henry Kissinger's concern was about a country that will soon pass off into oblivion. Ours is only, what, a couple hundred years old? It won't last forever. It's not that Henry's concern wasn't relevant. It only means that ours is so much more so. Furthermore, his concerns were temporal. Ours are both temporal and eternal. Before we dive into the morning text, allow me to pose a question for each of us to keep in focus as we consider nominating for ordination. It's very similar to what Dave has encouraged us, that our hearts are in the right place. So the question is, are your interests in ordination congruent with God's? Congruent is just another word for saying similar or the same. Do they match? Do they harmonize God's interests? If our interests aren't the same as God's, then we need a change. God has already told us what his interests are as we consider nomination. He's given us direction on what to look for in leadership. Dave used the word track record quite often while he was standing up here. The Bible has something to say about his track record. We need to align our interests with God's. And so this is in essence and focus of the morning message. Qualities that are to be evident. Qualities that have a track record. Qualities that need to be in place when the church calls men to lead. We have a verse here in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The context here in the Acts church was uh, calling multiple men to church work church leadership, or I think it was deacons here. I think at this time you're looking for one brother. But there's a lot of content here in this verse that we as conservative Anabaptists adopted in our practice of choosing church uh, leadership. It says you have the word wherefore. They recognized they had a need in their brotherhood, just like Dave uh, explained to you all. Because of the need at Weavertown, because of the workload, because of age, because of tenure. He says, it says here, look ye out among you. Now, this practice of, of choosing men from our midst is, again, in my opinion, just pretty ideal. I, I don't for a minute suggest that this is the only way a church can call men to leadership. But probably one of the, one of the better options out there. This is not a brother who is campaigning for the position. It's not one, it's one we know. It's one among us. Men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And this is what we plan to address in the message. 
qualifications, honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. I find it interesting and very instructive that while God in the new covenant has a lot to say about leadership qualifications in the church, yet he has almost nothing, if anything, to say about what qualities leadership should have in earthly government. You've probably thought about that before. I think that's interesting and instructive for us. To my knowledge, God has been silent about the qualities that Henry Kissinger was to have in his leadership. But he has a lot, God has a lot to say about leadership here at Weavertown. At Peckway, we're currently studying uh, in 1 Timothy in our Sunday school. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in Sunday school class, and I was again struck with the fact that God used the word must several times in the text here that that, um, Brother Miller, I can't say his name, read for us. Must. Track record. Qualities that must be evident when calling men among us who are then charged with leading the church. I'd like to just take a a brief look at the four times it's mentioned in the text here. Verse 2, we have a bishop must be blameless. I know that this ordination uh, is not for what we generally label as bishop at this time. However, your practice has been that you ordain bishops from your current leadership team, and so it definitely applies for this nomination. Secondly, uh, it seems probable, though, probable that the early church only had bishops and deacons in their pastoral teams. Other, bi- other Bible translations would use, uh, for the word bishop here, would use a uh, word elder or an overseer, lead pastor. It also seems apparent as you read, as you've read the text, that not only was the first qualification a must, but succeeding qualifications also include the must. But in verse 7, we have, we have, he must have a good report from those without, I think it says. Verse 8, likewise, the deacons, you'll notice, and you've probably already noticed, that a lot of overlap in deacons and bishops and, and their qualifications. But a verse 11 says, even so must their wives. His wife also must have certain qualities in order for her, her husband to be then qualified. Quite a few of the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 are also, limit, are also overlapped in Titus chapter 1, I think it is. There's a few differences, and we're going to be sometimes referring to the Titus text and the Timothy text. In the Titus text, in chapter 1, uh, Paul prefaces, prefaces, I guess that's how you say the word, the qualification from God. Uh, in, in Paul reminding Titus at his church that he has a specific work to do, it says there to set in order the things that are wanting. Set in order the things that are wanting. He was telling Titus to do this in the church. Do you, are there, 
Are there ever things wanting among you here at Weavertown? Uh, we have them from time to time at Peckway. Uh, you know, when I, I, I distinctly remember soon after I was ordained, maybe it was after I was ordained bishop, I forget now, that I, I kept thinking, you know, we have this, this thing that's wanting, that this issue that we need to get resolved. And once we get it resolved, we're going to move on into blissful, idyllic church life. Well, I found out that, or I've discovered that um, we tend, at least at Peckway, to be a people who continuously have some things wanting. There's direction here that leadership is to set in order things that are wanting. Someone has said the church is somewhat like a hospital. People come or people go to the hospital because they're sick. They have things wanting. And if they don't get help, some will probably die. Needs to have the things that are wanting taken care of. Those things that are wanting in church life generally don't fix themselves. They need to be addressed. They need to be corrected. They need to be worked through. Is the man that you plan to nominate, does he care about that which is wanting? Is he? Will he? Is he willing even now to be courageous enough to do something about it? Is he courageous enough to give direction? Maybe rebuke. Exhortation, encouragement. Is he courageous enough to chart a path and call brotherhood to walk in it? Most times the energy, the stamina, the willingness that is needed to, to set things in order that are wanting is the kind of activity that is hard work. It's not fun or appealing to many of us. But it's an, active, it's an activity that must be done in order that the bride is prepared for the groom. In verse 1, it says that the office of church leadership is a good work. The King James says it like this. This is a true saying. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, we've stumbled around this phrase just a little bit. I think we should understand it as God says it. It's a good work to be involved in. You don't have to be desirous of position. In fact, it would probably be better if you wouldn't tell the rest of your brotherhood that you think you would like to be bishop. But if God calls you to serve in a role of leadership, then you just accept it what God says. And just accept what God says here that you've been called to a good work. In fact, I don't know of many better works to be involved in than that of serving the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And you certainly don't have to be a bishop to do that. But if God calls you to this role, consider it a good work. We have the qualification of blameless. 
in verse 2. A bishop must be blameless. I don't know that God wants us to understand this idea of blameless as someone who never makes any mistakes. It's just completely perfect. He knows that's not how humans live. A blameless person, I think, is one who is allowed to make some mistakes. But the prominent character of a blameless person is his response upon the realization that he has made a mistake. It's called repentance. It's called remorse or regret for a failure. It's taken responsibility for his actions that may have been selfish or uncharitable. A blameless person is one who has proved and is conscientious about living a lifestyle that others can't fault. Doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes. But even you would agree, I think we would all agree, that someone who makes a mistake and takes full responsibility and apologizes and lives differently is the kind of person that, that we want in our lives. It's hard to fault someone like that. The text in, in um, Hebrews, or in, the text in, in Titus would say, blameless as the steward of God. A steward in the scriptures is generally depicted as one who acts in the interests of his master. He's a steward. He's been entrusted with something that's not his. He's not given the role of stewardship to benefit himself. Everything he does, every command he gives, every directive he gives, every decision that is made is done in the interests of his master. That's a steward. Another word in the, in the uh, Titus text is the word just. I believe the word just has very similar meanings as blameless. What is, what is characterized by a man that is, that is just? You probably can think of a few. Joseph, the husband of Mary is described by God as a, a just man. You ever think about why he might have got that label from God? I, I, think, I think it's very appropriate and it's very revealing that he was considered a just man. Uh, those of you who are married or about to be, what would you have done how would you have been inclined to respond if your betrothed would have become pregnant? Joseph, he knew in his own heart that he wasn't the father of the child. In fact, there's two things that I'm quite sure Joseph was, was absolutely sure about. Number one, he knew his wife was pregnant. And secondly... He knew he wasn't the father. Those two truths, I believe, were firmly entrenched in his understanding, in his interaction and relationship with Mary. Also remember that Joseph lived and was influenced. He was taught and raised by a culture that took revenge on a woman like 
Mary? Well, the Bible records it to say that Joseph was inclined to put her away privately. That tells me that he was not at all interested or inclined to make a public example of her. In order to vindicate himself. That is why I believe the Bible bears record of Joseph being a just man. I'd venture to guess that the suspicion toward Joseph being in immoral in that Jewish culture was very, very strong. And I would guess Joseph had to feel some condemnation from his own people. A just man. When you nominate, you're looking for a man who is more concerned about the betrothed more concerned about the preparation of the groom's arrival, more concerned about that than his own reputation. Husband of one wife, also in verse 2. I don't know that we need to spend a lot of time here. We've done okay, I think, with this qualification for the most part. Polygamy is not even allowed in our country, which we thank God for, let alone here at Weavertown. Unless you count a divorced man taking a second wife while the first one yet lives, which I know you don't practice here at Weavertown. But yes, those, that's very prominent in the society we are living in today. Men take another wife while her first one is still living. I think in the eyes of God, he's a polygamist. He's not the husband of one wife. I also recognize that most times we ordain married men. However, I don't understand this text telling us that the one who is chosen has to, be, has to have a wife in order to be qualified. But if he is married, he will only have one wife. Maybe some more applications can be made for us to consider in this qualification, this husband of one wife. Is the man you're considering nominating, is he a a one-woman man. Is he satisfied with his one wife, devoted to her and only her? If he has a roving eye for other women, I'm, I'm suggesting he's not meeting the biblical qualification. Again, in verse 2, we have the qualification of vigilant. Well, what do you think about when you think of this qualification? Vigilant. He's watchful. He's alert. He's really interested in what's going on. He cares about what's taking place in the church and consequently where she's headed. I remember hearing about this one pastor who sometimes will just stand up here in the platform after church and watch his congregation. Watch what takes place after church. And they're visiting. They're interacting. He's watching. Vigilant. Good behavior. Verse 2. How he behaves himself should be wholesome and godly. 
when you examine his behavior, there should be no question on who he wants to identify with and what he promotes. Behavior tells us a lot. Given the hospitality, the Titus text says, a lover of it. You know, if you're given to something and you're a lover of it, probably won't have to look real hard to see if you have it or not, or to see if that brother has it. I think this includes inviting people to your home for Sunday dinner, but a lover of hospitality is a lot more than Sunday dinner. It's a keen, it's taking a keen interest in other people, in the people of his church, his brotherhood, wanting to do what he can both physically and spiritually for them. And I know we, we sometimes face difficult situations where it's hard to know how to best help. But the desire and the willingness needs to be present. Apt to teach. Apt to teach. I know you have these brothers among you. Capable to teach. I believe that one loses his ability to teach when he is no longer learning. I admire men who love to read and love to learn. It gives them a perspective. It gives them ability to teach much better. Studying and learning take effort, but it's needful if we plan to be teachers, if we are going to be apt to teach. Verse 3 has a list of qualities. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. I see these qualifications summed up, pretty well, pretty well all captured in this, this thing of, of control of our lives. We, sometimes we say self-control, but I think a better word would be spirit-controlled. So is the spirit bearing fruit? We have a list of the fruit in Galatians 5 verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Frankly, I'm of the persuasion that none of us ever experience a difficulty so great and so big, so intense, so severe that we're exempt from producing this kind of fruit. What's this brother look like? What does he act like? What do you see coming from his life when he's in those kind of situations? We have that one phrase there, not a brawler. A brawler is one who just loves to fight. He, he actually enjoys contention. He likes to instigate contention. Yesterday I was looking at the uh, text, in, at a passage in Numbers 15 and 16, and I think you're all familiar with the story there. Korah 
and his group of folks. Um, but that you have community life right there in the Old Testament where you have a man leading a group of instigators decide to take things in their hands rather than listen to Moses and Aaron and, and the leadership that God had established, ordained. You read the story, it's actually pretty dramatic. It's also very sobering. Korah and his group reacted to Moses and his leadership, and you see them, the people literally saw them consequently swallowed up in a pit of earth. Earth opened up and covered them up. The next day, I think it was, the whole congregation then accused Moses and Aaron of killing Korah's group. Now, that was so far from the truth. God opened the earth and swallowed up the people. There was absolutely no basis for that accusation against Moses and Aaron. And God dealt very swiftly and harshly with those who made that unjust accusation. I think if I remember right, it was 14,700 more people were killed or had to die. In fact, and as I remember right, there would have even been more who had died had not Moses and Aaron began interceding for their people. Not a brawler. Not one who loves that kind of contention. We also have the word um, not covetous. Covetous, a covetous person is, is, is a kind of person who has a passion to have his, his selfish appetites satisfied or fulfilled. You know, me, myself, and I, we're just about the most important people on the face of the earth, and, and that's all we care about. When we forget that Jesus is the most important and his desires, his kingdom. Jesus first, yourself last, others in between. I remember Jonathan telling me about an older pastor here in our community in one of the Mennonite churches. This was years and years ago. I don't know the man or his name. But I think it was at a, at a funeral one day where Jonathan was preaching, I think, in the funeral, um, but it wasn't, wasn't Pequay, and he, I think he was at this man's church uh, preaching a funeral message. But anyway, in the matter of conversation, this older man told Jonathan that, that he doesn't want to go come to the end of life and have people think of him as an authort, authort, authoritarian um, kind of person who was, you know, staunch, strong-minded, determined, uh, on bending dispositions. Rather, he, he, he really wants to go down in history as one who was well-liked. Now, I, I guess, I would guess all leaders, probably all people that have some kind of leadership responsibilities would like to be well-liked. I heard the story many years later, but this pastor, he lived in such a way, he led his church in such a way, he related to his people in such a way that he avoided the possibility of him ever being considered strict or disciplinary or authoritarian. He avoided it like the plague he thought it to be. Any kind of resolute, decisive leadership, any kind of 
appearance of, of possible conflict or opposition. He did everything he could to avoid it. And you can probably guess where churches end up with leadership like that. That's a price, that's a high price to pay. And a high price to give an account for God to God for. Versus that of being a, a biblicist for just a few short years. Today, his church, there's hardly any Bible doctrine left. There's divorce and remarriage. There's homosexuality. You name it. Somebody has to care enough about what God says versus what, how people might relate to them. One of the responsibilities that your new minister will be charged with upon ordination is that of watching for souls as they that must give an account. We have this text here in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. And I'll remind us again that the context in which this responsibility is given him, watching for souls as they that must give an account, has an awful lot to do with how you're going to relate to him. God wants that charge he's going to be getting, God wants that to be a joy, not a grief for him. Back to the text. Verse 4 and 5. One that ruleth well his own house, having his own children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? How shall he take care of the church of God if it isn't done at home? I think Dave was exactly right. The Bible has a lot to say about how he's leading his home. And we're supposed to get direction from that. This is, this is a really relevant question God asks here in this text. If he's not doing well at home, don't expect it to happen in well church. If they're known to be riot, if, they know, if they're known to be unruly and riotous, you know you don't want that kind of church life. Therefore, how he's doing with family will give pretty evidence on how he will be doing with church, having faithful children. The, the text in Titus says, having faithful children who are not accused of riot or unruly. Those of you who have had much, much experience in family life, you, you know that things just don't work very well when there's not order, when there's not uh, godly submission. I believe there needs to be godly submission from father to to. First of all, his heavenly father and to his brothers that, that he is placed among. I believe his, his wife and children need to find their role in submission. Having faithful children who are not accused of riot or unruly. Not a novice, verse 6. That has the idea of let them first be proven. Again, I'll quote Dave here, track record. Let them first be proved. Then call them to leadership. No one should be given a charge such as this who doesn't have a track record. Verse 7. Good report of them that are without. Weavertown, this local congregation is to be a presence in this community 
that attracts and magnetizes people toward Jesus Christ. I think it includes, well, it definitely includes those, those who are without are definitely those who are unsaved. I think it also should say something to the saved when they look at Weavertown. Your presence in the community should attract and draw people towards Jesus. I think you'll agree that this will be rather difficult to accomplish if your church leader already has a negative report about those from those without. So, what kind of report can you give concerning the brother you plan to nominate? Is it obvious to you that he gives attendance to reading? Meditate, takes heed the doctrine. We have a verse here in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. It says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Here, here we have God saying, Take heed to doctrine. If you were, if you were to um, just give me a definition of doctrine, how would you quickly say it? What's doctrine? You all talk here, don't you? What's doctrine? Truth. Truth. Told me if you wait long enough, I might have a talk. Truth. Yes. Truth. Practice what you believe. Allow me to say this. If your church and its leadership truly care and embrace doctrine, there will have to be a resulting practice and expectation. If you really believe in something, it's going to be evident in how you live, in what you say you believe. We, we sometimes refer to this as our church covenant or our standards of practice. And I know, I'll be the first one to, to admit that doing things a certain way, practicing things a certain way, believing things like God says isn't always, isn't always uh, popular or, or, the, or the desired way to do church in 2019. I maintain, however, that if you're going to have a brotherhood that cares about doctrine, you will have a resulting belief and practice. You can't tell me you strongly believe in something and it doesn't make a difference in your life. It's not possible. Weavertown needs a man who is committed to the scriptures, to doctrine. A man committed. One who can stay on the straight and narrow through both Flogging and flattery. And trust me, both will occur. Sometimes pastors are appreciated, sometimes they're not. He needs to be one who can stay on the straight and narrow either time. You will want to nominate a leader who establishes his life on God. 
We have this verse in Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what's going to be left for the righteous? What can the righteous do? Does the man you're considering nominating, does he have a good foundation? One who has a good foundation can continue to grow and develop and serve even better. But if the foundation's not there, it's probably not going to grow well. How is this foundation? Will it stand the next tidal wave that sweeps through our community? I'll close with a story that Christina told a long time ago. He tells a story of, of a resident soon after they moved up there in New York State, uh, a person who had a, Chris was in construction, and so he wanted this, he wanted Chris to come look at his house that he wanted to restore. And so Chris goes and, and he meets with the man, the owner of this house, and uh, this, this man commences to give Chris a tour of, of this house that he, he wants to, he was going to spend a lot of money restoring this thing back to, to, to what it should have been, could have been. He was pointing out various features that he was pretty happy with. He had 10 foot ceilings and he had transom, gothic transoms above the, above the, do, above the windows and doors. And, uh, Krista, he says, as soon as he got in the house, he says to the owner, he says, I, I, I'd like to see the foundation of this house. But the man, he wasn't, he wasn't interested in the foundation. He was all concerned about showing off the trim and the transits. And, uh, and uh, he goes to the next room. He says, Chris, he said, look at this trim on this house. And he says, and Chris says, can I, can I see the foundation? And the man says, you know, let, let's go upstairs. And he had this open stairway with, you know, beautiful railings. And, and he was just imagining how this was going to look after it's all restored. And so he wanted to lead him upstairs. And Chris says, no. He says, we're, we're gone. We're going the wrong direction here. He says, I want to see the foundation. He says, everything that you like is resting on the foundation. He says, if, 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 if the foundation goes, the rest of this stuff is just going to be splinters real quick. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Many brotherhoods have been affected negatively because the men who were voted for had foundations that were obviously crumbled and breaking down. And I use the word obviously. I don't know that you're going to find a man that is perfect. We're humans. They're human. But are they willing to make their mistakes known? Are they willing to grow and change? You see, if the foundation is solid, you can, you can, you can repair the cracks in the drywall on the next floor. If it's solid, you can go ahead and repair them. The doors can be shimmed and you can, you can make those transoms just look pretty good. If the foundation's solid, you can go ahead and spend some money and it's going to be worth it. But if the foundation is moving and heaving, 
you can shim and you can patch drywall this year and again next year and the following year, only to be end up with it cracking and falling apart again the following. Are your interests in ordination congruent with God's? Let's kneel for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we recognize that you are a God who has good things in mind for your bride. You have great expectations. You're also a God who is very gentle and long-suffering with us. You don't give up on us easily. You continue to work with us. You continue to call us to yourself. We thank you for how good you've been to us. You've been good to our fathers. You're good to us today. And we trust that as we allow you to lead and direct us, it'll be good for us tomorrow. Thank you so much for the brotherhood here at Weavertown. Thank you for those who have gone before and led well. Thank you for those who are currently doing that. And we thank you for those that you are going to raise up. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.